the word ekphrasis comes from the Greek for the description of the work of art produced as a rhetorical exercise. It is a vivid, often dramatic, verbal description of a visual art piece. Hi everyone, this is Darwin Messidu. Welcome to season three, episode 10, the season finale of The Ichphrastic, a podcast where we paint pictures with words. As always, please like, subscribe, and follow us on Twitter. We're at The Ichphrastic. On Instagram, same thing, The Ichphrastic. And to check out all the artwork we discuss, please visit darwindarko.com backslash ichphrastic. All this stuff is categorized there for your uh, viewing pleasure. Today's subject, Maria Primachenko was a self-taught village folk artist from Ukraine, an inspiration for Picasso and Chagall. Her works are now an international symbol of the call for peace. We'll get to know her a little bit better in a second, but first, let's get into some art news. All right, so first up is our rapid fire, like we tend to do, reading um, this lineup from news.artnet.com. And what do we have here? So first up in law uh, putin opened the door for mass looting of ukrainian cultural heritage with his recent declaration of martial law uh, so there ukraine's cultural ministry declared that the evacuation of crimean of the uh, crimean museums will be considered a war crime akin to those of world war ii uh, there's a write-up by taylor defoe a couple of days ago you can read up uh, further on that and that had just uh, searched that headline. Uh, what's another headline here that's of interest? Uh, we paint something because we want to remember. Watch artist Song Dong honor um, impermanence with his disappearing artworks. So as part of a collab, um, a collab with um, with Art Twenty One, um, here news making artists describe their inspirations in their own words. So Artnet News has a write up there, so you can have. Uh, uh, a little experience there. You get several artists and and who are describing uh, how they come up with the work and and execute it. In the people section, we have New York Mayor Eric Adams has tapped a team of four artists to help him solve gun violence, homelessness, and other problems. Um, uh, sounds like it can be an innovative approach to assist the problems. There's no magic solution ever for these types of situations. But um, a quick quick synopsis here: the artist will create public artworks about urban infrastructure, homelessness, hate crimes, and gun violence. Uh, the article is written, written up by Eileen uh, Kinsela. Uh, and, and like I was saying, there's um, never a magic solution, but it's nice to know that art has um, an ability to contribute to um, the slate of, of, of resources that will help um, the solution for solving gun violence and homelessness in New York. What else do we have here? In archaeology, scientists using lasers have discovered vast manners from the fabled Mayan snake dynasty hidden in the jungle. So LiDAR technology has revealed new details about the Timi Kanul capital of Kalakmul. Uh, so Vittoria Benzine has a write-up on that one. Uh, and moving right along, some news on... The museum, so uh, the Louvre, something happening here. So already pinworthy, the Louvre ups its 
social media appeal in a new video series with Pinterest. So the Louvre and Pinterest have collaborated on, um, on a quirky series of videos offering a new experience of the world's most popular museum. So this looks like it could be a fun, um, a uh, fun few minutes of your time if you don't have uh, the opportunity to fly over to uh, France. Um, you can visit the Louvre, um, looks like, uh, by experiencing this video series. So Richard Whittington has a write-up on that one. Uh, what else we got here? Interesting in the art news for this wind-up before we get to our main story. So in art history, high-tech scans reveal that an oil sketch long dismissed as a crude imitation of Rembrandt is the real deal. So science um, uh, analysis backed up an expert's hunch. So uh, that's always good to have uh, to validate the experts. We have the science um, backing that up. And um, we definitely should, because it's gonna be the experts that, that point out um, certain things in art or whatever the industry that they're in that from their experiences, but it does come down to an expert opinion at the end of the day. Uh, and so it depends on how uh, valid that expert is, how researched they are, how credible they are. Um, Cause we don't want to, you know, believe things just out of, you know, authority an argument from authority, but having the science to back this up uh, is, is really um, useful. And, it, and it's really encouraging to know that the science is out there and that art as much of a um, esoteric sort of genre can use uh, tangible tools like uh, those provided by science to to validate some of the questions in the art world so good to know um let's see what else we got so in uh in a big art world news so art industry news in uh so artnet wrote up on this one italy's new right-wing culture minister public um publicly scolds the Uffizi for closing on a national holiday. Uh, so the British Museum prioritizes renovations to its crumbling uh, Parthenon Marbles Gallery and the U.S. returns a looted statue to Cambodia. So, oh, this looks like it's a roundup of a bunch of different stories there. So Artnet News is your source for that. And the last one in this quick roundup, it was kind of funny, is that um, was well, parody, apparently. So an artist sold a fake Basquiat frame for $780,000. Now he says it was a prank, <laughs> okay? Um, well done, I guess. I don't know if anybody finds that funny. Whoever might be, um, might have been separated with that uh, 780K. So the work was wrongly attributed after Heller told a specialist he had watched Basquiat make the frame himself. Uh, so Joe Lawson Tankard uh, wrote up on this. And uh, check out the art world and art, um, artnet.com for all these uh, all these stories where you can uh, read into them a little further. So for our main story for today uh, comes from the art newspaper. So the headline goes, in 100 years, all these antiquities will be gone as COP27 opens in Egypt. Climate crisis is still taboo, is a still taboo subject at art and heritage institutions. This is written up uh, by Joe Ware on the 4th of November, just the other day. So on the 6th of November, yesterday, 
The 27th United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP27, opens in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. The location is telling. Never before has a COP summit taken place in a country so intimately connected to ancient antiquities, from the pyramids to the Sphinx and the tomb of, of uh, Ooh, how do you say it? Tutten? Is this King Tut? And to the tomb of Tut, all of which face growing threats from harsher weather, hotter temperatures, and rising seas. Zashi Hawaz, Egypt's former Ministry of State for Antiquities Affairs, warns that virtually all open-air archaeological sites in Egypt are at serious risk. In my view, in 100 years, all these antiquities will be gone because of climate change, he says. At COP27, delegates will consider whether museums should move away from the historic position of climate neutrality and towards climate action. But is the debate still necessary? In 2021, the American Alliance of Museums commissioned a study that found museums ranked second only to friends and family as a trusted source and significantly ahead of scientists, NGOs, and the media. Uh, of course, way higher than government and business. Should this store of trust be deployed for the common good? Robert Jaynes is a researcher at the School of Museum Studies in uh, Leicester and was editor-in-chief of the Museum Management and um, Curatorship Journal from 2003 to 2014. In the online publication The Beam, he writes, why is the global museum community not confronting climate change with its collective will and intelligence? One explanation is that climate change is a taboo subject, not to be talked about with family, friends, and colleagues. This taboo must be demolished. Radical changes are needed across society to ensure global heating remains below 1.5 degrees Celsius, says Rodney Harrison, the professor of heritage studies at University College London. Museums could play a leading role in these transformations, but they can only do so if they make significant changes to the way they operate and communicate. The frustrating thing is, this is all already agreed, says Henry McGee, founder of Climate um, Consultancy Curating Tomorrow. The governments of all the countries that are party to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC or UNFCCC, and Paris Agreement agree, uh, already recognize this. They have adopted a new program, but this doesn't seem to have bled down to the workings of many museums. We have a golden opportunity to act on climate change as a sector, but we're not making use of it. Beyond the COP summits, the UN also played host to uh, Mondiocult, the UNESCO World Conference on Cultural Policies and Sustainable Development in Mexico City, Mexico City this past September. Uh, held 40 years after the first Mondiocult conference. It focused purely on UNESCO's cultural policy and how that relates to globally agreed sustainable development and climate change policies. So here's a powerful signal. Speaking at Mondiocult, Andre Azule, the director general of UNESCO, recognized that despite progress, culture still does not have the place it deserves in public policies and international cooperation even though it plays a fundamental role in our lives. She welcomed the Mondiocult decision that culture should be included as a specific objective in its own right. Among the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, it was, she said, a powerful signal and a commitment to action. Ernesto Otone 
Ramirez, UNESCO's Assistant Director General for Culture and a former culture minister for, for Chile, told the art newspaper, all ministers agreed we should leverage culture as part of sustainable development and environmental issues. However, some commentators believe Mondiocult could have done much more. It asked for culture to be operationalized in UNFCCC, but that already exists, um, but that already exists, says McGee. Rather than expecting other policy areas to change to incorporate culture, cultural policy should be much more overt about its role in existing agreements. This is uh, a typical situation where policy development is not backed up with clear action. A new definition for museums was agreed at the annual meeting of the International Council of Museums in Prague in August 2022. Climate action was not included in the definition. The debate then continues even as the pyramids crumble. So this this came to my attention specifically because there's been a lot of environmental activism that's been going on in museums and galleries well, at least they've been in the news as of late. And maybe they've been happening. Well, climate activists are always um, taking action in different spaces and places and timing. Uh, but it's it's there seems to be a copycat activism um, that's been going on globally now with going to museums and, and protesting there. They've been doing things like throwing soup at um Rembrandt's or taping their hand to the walls um or I, I think I there was one that they did to the uh, Mona Lisa I think I might have read that last month there was something they threw food at the Mona Lisa and they they glued themselves to the wall now there's a there's gonna be there's always a debate when it comes to protests um from those that are not part of the protest saying oh this wasn't the way to do it this isn't the right way to do it and I guess I'm of two minds with that because the point of these kind of out, out we could call them outrageous or abnormal um, actions is to draw attention. And the fact that it worked, it worked. They drew the attention uh, of the, of the news, uh, newspapers and, and news organizations and folks are writing about it. And, and yeah, the, the splashy headline is going to be somebody um, glued their hands to the wall or either on the basketball court. I think that happened actually last season of the NBA. But yeah, the headline says that, but you read onto it and you're like, why did they do this? You're like, okay, why did they do that? Why would you glue your hands to this thing? Why would you um, chain yourself to, these, to this door or, or this tree? And... Um, so the discussion is actually happening and it's prompted because they took this action. I mean, I think what was happening before, and I'm sure, is people are, you know, they go to a town hall, they'll speak up, they'll go, you know, they write letters and they may have, they post something on social media, but nothing really happens. It doesn't really like grab the attention of the masses. And so you have to, you then are left to resort to, Okay, well, this is for the greater good of everybody. And we're trying to do it subtly, but nobody's paying us any attention. So we need to make some headlines. We need to get in front of the masses. And so you then do something that that's controversial. 
that gets people talking about it. And so that's the whole point. When people say that it's not effective, oh, you're not going to get legislation changed because you threw soup at a Monet <laughs> or, you know, mashed potatoes at a Picasso or something, uh, you know, and, and that's not going to get legislation changed. That's not going to get the corporations to, to, to reduce uh, emissions. Well, the, 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 that's not the point. The point of the protest is to begin the conversation. And in the conversation, we can have cooler heads prevail and come up with like um, society, logical, societal, um, and equitable solutions to the problems that we are not aware of because we wasn't even aware. We just thought it was some crazy person gluing their hands to the wall and found out why. There's a certain percentage of people that's gonna is gonna resonate with and make them want to dig into in, into it deeper and figure out what the protest was about. And oh, turns out this does matter to me. I I may per, for example have grandkids that I want this you know that I want to be a good steward for so that my grandkids can have a planet to to come home to. You know, after we're done exploring the universe or whatever, whatever the heck we're doing in, in 50, 50 to 100 years. So, yep, that's why this article came into mind. And it's um, it's going to keep happening. We're going to we're going to keep seeing. And, and, and even for this topic area to be uh, such a major uh, pillar during this particular conference, um, it may be in part because of the increased activism that's that's been going on. So, it it progress is slow, and it may not be pretty. And if you're not specifically part of the protests, you might not like it. But there's it's it's always the case that that when you try to get its people's attention when you're protesting, you're gonna ruffle some feather some feathers. Um, but overall, attention to the issue is is the point. So. Uh, good for them for getting um, for for getting their their the word out there, and it's for the greater good of everyone. That you know, if we want to have these antiquities available, if we want to have um, beaches available, if we want to have just our planet inhabitable the way that we've known it, we will have to start making some changes. Uh, we should have been started making some changes, but uh, it's even more urgent now. And I'm glad to see that large organizations, because from the individual level, just me using a straw, a paper straw versus a plastic straw, from the individual level, that's it's very negligible that that makes any um, difference. But once we get large institutions to start buying into the concept of preserving our planet and, and making things uh, environmentally better and more sustainable, uh, that's really what the difference is going to happen. And we're going to really see that we're, we're taking some life-saving, earth-saving maneuvers at that stage. So I'm all for it. And uh, I'll be moving on and I'll be checking in on this uh, in future episodes. Before we get back to our artists, I, of course, have a book recommendation. So this one is the winner of the Illustrated Book of the Year Award back in 1994. It's called The Art Book. It's a smart and lavishly produced um, collection. This A to Z directory of artists throughout history is one of the ones that you're going to want to have on your coffee table or, or library. Uh, ranging from the Middle Ages to today, the book features 500 artists, and while some are better known than others, each is given the same treatment. Uh, a nearly full page, you get your full color reproduction of, of some key work printed with, you know, razor sharp attention to detail. Each entry is accompanied by a brief text with a career overview of the respective artists written in clear, 
easy to follow language. Um, anywhere you open this volume, you'll find breathtaking images. And since the artists are presented alphabetically, you'll encounter unexpected just juxtapositions of styles and, and uh, eras across each spread. Like one pairing 17th century Dutch painter, um, Hendrik uh, Bruggen and contemporary French conceptualist Daniel Byrne. Though the art book leans heavily towards painting, it also covers sculptures, photography, video, and installation art. So pick that up wherever books are sold. It's an oldie but a goodie. Now we'll get back to our artist of the day, Maria Primachenko. Maria Primachenko was a self-taught village folk artist from Ukraine. Known for incredibly imaginative and colorful work featuring traditional motifs, lush flora, and fantastic beasts. These were all taken from and inspired by everyday life in rural Ukraine. Born to a peasant family in um, in a town 20 miles outside of Chernobyl in 1909, Maria attended school for only four years before contracting polio. The illness would leave her confined to a bed for much of her childhood. A later surgery would enable her to walk independently. The physical impairment would affect her life and art forever. Having the experience of polio from a young age is uh, it instilled in the artist a great sense of empathy for the suffering of others, and her caring for all living creatures was to become an important element in her art. She recalls, once as a young girl, I was tending a gaggle of geese. When I got them to a sandy beach on the bank of the river, after crossing a field dotted with wild flowers, I began to draw real and imaginary flowers with a stick on the sand. Later, I decided to paint the walls of my house using natural pigments. After that, I've never stopped drawing and painting. During the 1930s, Primachenko was part of the Ivankiv Co-op um, Co Embroidery Association, where she earned a reputation for her synthesis of traditional Ukrainian design with her own imaginative creations. These vivid embroideries were in turn discovered in a street market by Kiev-based artist Tetiana Floru, who invited the young Primachenko to the Central Experimental Workshop of the Kiev Museum of Ukrainian Art, a studio where a team of artists was working toward the first Republican folk art exhibition, which first took place in Kiev in 1936. Maria earned fame in her lifetime for dazzling, colorful, and wildly inventive scenes of animals, lions, birds, horses, and, and other beasts. Covered in riotously hued, almost psychedelic patterns, she, she might be Ukraine's most beloved artist. Her likeness has actually appeared on stamps and even the country's coinage. Because she lacks formal art education or training, her work is categorized as the naive art style. Naive art is usually defined as visual art that is created by a person who lacks the formal education and training that a professional artist undergoes. Unlike folk art, naive art does not necessarily derive from a distinct popular cultural context or tradition. So you can get 
you can be both, which indeed Maria embodied. So you can be both a folk artist and a naive artist. Um, naive artists are believed to be aware of fine art conventions, but are simply unable to use them. But tell that to Henry Rousseau, um, who was impressive enough to get Picasso's endorsement. However, when when he does it, it's called post-impressionism instead of, quote, unquote, naive. Another term that may be used, especially of paintings and architecture, is provincial, essentially used for work by artists who had received maybe some conventional training, but whose work unintentionally falls short of conventional standards. At surface level, naive art can be characterized by childlike simplicity of execution and vision, but many modernists have been known to go naive, seeking to get away from what they see as, as the insincere over-sophistication of art created within traditional systems. So how do you spot a Primachenko? Well, of course, you're going to be looking out for her vibrant colors, precise symmetric patterns, pretty floral motifs, and the fantastic beasts, which I mentioned. All of it comes together to portray joyous scenes of country life with imaginative details. And of course, there are these intriguing stories embedded in most of her pictures. Today's ekphrastic poem is a retrospective on a Primachenko work of art from 1982. It's a 61 by 85 centimeter um, gouache done with fluorescent paint on paper. And as a reminder, here's how this works. I'm going to be reading a description of a visual art piece. As I'm speaking, I want you to visit the ekphrastic page on my website, darwindarko.com. Uh, check the show notes. There should be a link. There you will find all of the stuff we discuss for your uh, viewing pleasure. So to accompany today's reading, I want you to pull up A Dove Has Spread Her Wings and Asked for Peace. I'll give you a second to search for it in your browser. is more than the absence of war, more than the enforced decorum of a shaky truce, enveloped in the ovum of agony and abuse, a glory leaf, the grim tar of a bloody past burning, a scorching scar of woes and grief. Peace is more than the absence of war, the phoenix rising from the ruins of Stalingrad and Berlin. Peace is more than the terrible silence of the ashes of Hiroshima and Auschwitz. For real peace rests in all nations just in accord and friendship, mutual respect and trust. Real peace means the extended hand of all faiths and amity in every land and mothers breastfeeding their babies in serenity. For peace is more than the absence of war. Real peace means the bliss of building new habitats in cities where concrete shelters are needless 
the shaky shields are useless. Real peace means tranquil fields. The farmers sing, planting rice, sowing seeds of soy, and wheat and rye in joy in the pristine morning. For peace is more than the absence of war. My soul all the days yearns for peace, soaring upwards in the rays of the dawn sun, longing for Noah's rainbow. Now look, the rivers placidly flow, and above the mist of first light, graced with diamond beams, a white dove flies beyond the peak with olive leaves in her beak. In a war-torn world, she carries on her wings to every country and nation the blessed harmonies of concert and cooperation, the dove of peace. She offers to all the peoples of the world the goodwill of man, the promise of halicorn days, true concord, the rebirth, and the dream of unity in today's discordant earth. For peace is more than the absence of war, but if our will prevails, Isaiah's vision will come true, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning knives. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, for peace is more than the absence of war. That was Dove of Peace by Paul Hartall. He um, he happens to be a painter in his own right. He's created the term lyrical conceptualism to characterize his style in both painting and poetry, attempting to unite the scientific with the creative or intuitive. Hartall proposes a theory of art which runs contrary to that, um, to what he claims is the traditional belief that emotion and intellect are at odds with each other. Hartal proposes the idea that artists should be allowed to contribute to the um, emotional and intellectual development of society the same way scientists do. You can read more about his, um, uh, about his concept from his 1975 published work, A Manifesto on Lyrical Conceptualism. In 1966, Primachenko was awarded the Taras Shashenko National Prize of Ukraine, one of the country's highest honors. Despite her popularity, Maria never actually sold her works for money, instead gifting them to friends and neighbors. She created thousands of works in her lifetime. The National Museum of Ukrainian Folk Decorative Art in Kyiv alone holds over 600 works by the artist. Earlier this year in February, Russia, um, Russian forces burned down the Ivankov Historical and Local History Museum located in, located in the Ukrainian village of Ivankov. So this is, um, this is northwest of Kyiv, the museum that, um, that has the most of the work which I mentioned earlier is is actually in Kyiv, but this particular museum is northwest of Kyiv. This museum housed approximately 25 paintings by the um, 
the folk artists and the paintings were all thought to have been destroyed in the fire. However, recent reports suggest that some of the works may have been saved by a local resident. Uh, so I'm, I have this piece that I want to read from Artland magazine that, that goes into a little bit more detail about what's, what's uh, about Primachenko, about what's going on with the, with the Russian war in Ukraine and what's going on with her artwork here. So in the meantime, Maria Primachenko's art has become a, an example of protest art and is being spread as a message of peace and resistance all over the world. The article, um, this article is dedicated to her incredibly spirited art and a strong message of peace, the importance of which cannot be understated today. Maria Primachenko was born, as I mentioned, uh, to a peasant family. From her family, she learned various traditional Ukrainian crafts, including embroidery, in 1934, the Central Experimental Workshop opened at Key Museum of Ukrainian Art and started collecting talented folk artists. Uh, Primachenko was invited to join in 1936, uh, which, and again, I mentioned she was discovered by Tatiana Flora, uh, who was a master weaver and embroiderer herself in Kyiv. Uh, during this time, Primachenko painted and embroidered and did ceramics work. Uh, in 1936, her work was exhibited in an entire hall at the First Republican ex Exhibition of Folk Art. The success of the exhibition led to a string of successful exhibitions in Paris, Warsaw, um, Sofia, Montreal, and Prague. She was awarded a golden medal at the 37 Paris World Fair. And when Pablo Picasso saw her works, he said, I bowed down before the artist's miracle of this brilliant Ukrainian. Uh, in 1970, Primachenko was awarded the title of People's Artist of Ukraine. Primachenko's paintings are referred to as, like I said, naive art, a term used to describe the work of artists who did not receive formal art training and who are completely self-taught without having many references to the history of art. She found her sources and themes in the decorative wall paintings that were prominent features in Ukraine in lullabies, folk legends, and fairy tales, and the nature that surrounded her. Primachenko loved color and imbued her paintings with rhythmic shapes and colors, creating a sensitive and passionate ode to life while interweaving it with the folk art influences that she grew up with. She drew the lines in her artwork with pencil and then painted with um, gouache and watercolor. Having lived through many difficult times and having lost the father um, of her child in World War II, Primachenko dedicated her art to exploring the struggle between good and evil. She often depicted this through various creatures, some of which were fantastical creatures she made up herself. Most of her works are permeated with this struggle between good and evil, where good always wins. Primachenko's art is one of the most powerful and pure forms of anti-war art, akin to that of the Norwegian, text, uh, the Nor Norwegian textile artist Hannah um, Bryjan, whose tapestries contained radical political messages against fascism, Nazism, and um, atrocities of war. In Primachenko's art, many of the titles underlined the visual anti-war and Pacific messages. In one of her paintings, which has become a strong symbol against the current war in Ukraine and the destruction and violence perpetrated by Russian forces, a white dove spreads its wings against a yellow background filled with flowers. The title is and you all know this now, a dove has spread her wings and asked for peace. Calling for an end to the war waged in Ukraine, this image was recently recreated as a street mural in St. Louis, Missouri, and in San Francisco, accompanied by the text, Stop 
war, stop the war in Ukraine and was projected onto the side of the building in Oakland, California. Other Maria Premchenko artwork that bear this strong message of peace include Flowers of Peace, May That Nuclear War Be Cursed, uh, that was in 1978, and May I Give This Ukrainian Bread to All People in This Big Wide World, that was an 82 piece. And as folks might have now learned, as we've been learning a lot about uh, that area of the world, uh, the Ukraine is, uh, you know, kind of known as the breadbasket of the world. Maria Primachenko died in 1997 in the village where she was born. Her artwork continues to carry the very heart and spirit of Ukraine to this day and call out for an end to the violence destroying ordinary people's lives. So there's a special little note here I think I'd share with, the, with, uh, with our listeners. The Primachenko Family Foundation has partnered with Rug for Life, so R-U-G, just a rug, Rug for Life, to create children's rugs with artwork by Maria Primachenko. So each rug is made to order and 100% of the proceeds are donated to support Ukraine. This sounds like a worthy cause. I would suggest checking them out, Rug rug Your Life, and uh, support how you can and if you and if you can. So that, that was really fascinating to get to know Maria a little bit better. I appreciate you guys joining me on this journey. We painted yet another pretty picture for today's episode and for this season. Um, so for this and other artwork we discussed, like I mentioned before, go to darwindarko.com backslash ekfrastic and, and check out all the artwork that, that have been featured and all the artists that have been featured this season. Uh, if you like the show or if you want to leave some creative feedback, please rate us five stars, hopefully, and leave a comment. It's always helpful. Uh, helps us figure out how to get the show better, uh, make the show better, and topics and artists that um, may be of interest to our listening family. Um, uh, another great way to support the show is to share it on your socials, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever you got. Uh, I know Twitter is going through some turmoil right now, but we're still on Twitter for the time being. Uh, and that's at the Ekfrastic. You can find us uh, on Twitter and Instagram at the same, at The Ekfrastic, and on YouTube, just search Ekfrastic Podcast. So follow the show, and whenever we put up new content, maybe we can swim our way up your timeline. I've been Dara Mesidu. Thanks again for listening to The Ekfrastic.